Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Amen. Church, you guys can have a seat. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Let me say welcome to all of you joining us online as well. Uh, it is a special morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, what, a, what an incredible special day for us to celebrate. Uh, really, we pray and we honor. Um, and we pray it's a blessed day for all women because we understand this as the scripture teaches us that all women are nurturers in some way. And so in some way or, or another, you influence and nurture the lives around you. And so we are very thankful for that nurturing in our lives. We're extremely grateful and we want to honor that. And we celebrate womanhood and we worship the creator of women and moms. Amen, men? Amen. <laughs> our title this morning is Greater Danger as we continue our walk and journey through Hebrews. And as I was thinking about that this week, it made me think of a few things that my mama may have said to me, um, warning me of a greater danger. And I thought I would share. Here's just a few of these that, uh, and she may be, she might have watched first service. I don't know. I haven't got the call yet. So uh, she might be watching this service. But uh, when I was a, a wee little one, come, some of these things were said to me. Here's the first one. Again, warning me of a greater danger. Ask me that one more time. There's a greater danger, son. Ask me that one more time. Or this one, don't go out, don't go out without a coat or you'll get sick. There's a greater danger. Now, as a child, I, you know, as I grew and matured and stuff, obviously we want to research the science behind that phrase just to see if we could prove mom wrong. And to this day, mom's not backed off of that statement. So, um, or this one, don't swallow your gum. It will stay in your stomach for seven years. It's a greater danger. I have no idea the med medical, you know, science behind that. Or this one, if you break a leg, don't come running to me, which, which as a child made sense. Like, you got it, Mom. If I hurt myself, you're not going to help. But as you got older, you're like, wait, that's, that can't even, actually. Uh, and then this one, which was said a lot. This is probably the one that was said the most. Wait till your father gets home. <laughs> and sometimes she didn't wait. And then the three S's came into play. It was the spoon, or the spatula, or the switch. And the switch, that one got you. Because you were always sent, or at least I was always sent out, to choose the switch. And you're always sitting there thinking, which one? If I get one too small, she's going to send me back out here. If I get one too big, it's probably not going to be pleasant. That kind of thing. So anyways, we love you moms. We, we love those who even who, if you're not a mom, we love you. We, we celebrate you today. We are grateful for how God has made you and wired you. You are God's unique, beautiful design. We love your influence in our lives and around our lives. And I pray today that we have an opportunity to say thank you and celebrate, uh, celebrate the, the women in our lives um, who have influenced and helped us. And here's what we know. There are times in our lives... When we need to be warned, just like those times that my mom was trying to warn me that we are in a dangerous situation. And if we ignore those warnings, 
It can lead to some devastating consequences, which leads to our text in Hebrews chapter 2, as we are in week 3 of our journey through the book of Hebrews. So if you want to join me in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, if you have a Bible, if you want to open it, um, if you have an electronic device, go to Hebrews chapter 2. If you have it in hard copy, you can find the middle of the Bible, find the New Testament, starting with the book of Matthew, and move towards the back of the Bible. If you find the First Timothy, and then you'll find Second Timothy, then this little tiny book called Philemon, and right after that is Hebrews. And if you go to James, you've gone one book too far. So the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Too. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, even online, we are so um, honored and grateful for you to join with us as we walk through this text. Just verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews chapter 2. Let's see what God has for us this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just Retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And I'll say this, today's text as we get into Hebrews is weighty. It's heavy. There's some theology, deeper theology here, and there's parts of this that, that are going to open up a conversation that we're going to have later in some other chapters in Hebrews. And so if I don't answer some of those questions that may come out as the Spirit speaks to us this morning through the Word, uh, just know that we're coming to that. So you don't necessarily have to send me an email asking me that. We're going to cover it, I promise, okay? But in order to understand what's happening here in chapter 2, we have to kind of review chapter 1. So again, if you're joining us, uh, here's a quick review of what's taken place as Pastor Tyra led uh, last week and walked us through chapter 1. Chapter 1 is focused really on the superiority of Christ. It's focused on um, uh, several titles that are given to Jesus in chapter 1. He's called the heir of all things. He's called the one through whom God made the world. He's called the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, the upholder of all things by the word of his power. And these titles and these phrases are being given in order that, that no one, no one living, no one, no one anywhere would get the idea that he is something other than what he is. And what he is, is the Son of God. He is simply greater, which is the title of our series, Jesus is Greater. So the whole of the first chapter is preoccupied with who Christ is. Because understanding who Christ is is absolutely essential for understanding what he has done for us in salvation, which leads us into chapter 2. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to understand the exalted nature of Jesus Christ. And the goal of the passage in chapter 1 is to convince and to remind everyone that Jesus, again, is greater. He's greater than anybody and anyone and anything. As good and as great as everything that preceded him during the time of the old covenant under Moses, Jesus is greater, is what we see in chapter 1. Jesus is immeasurably superior to anything our hearts can conceive or our minds can imagine. Jesus Christ is God's full and final revelation to the world of what is good, true, beautiful, and eternal. He is the one who by God's decree will inherit everything. I mean, he did create everything. He is the radiance of God's glory. Again, the exact, precise expression and embodiment of what 
God is like. You want to know God? Know Jesus. He bears up and carries along by his powerful word the whole of the universe so that what God has ordained will come to pass will in fact come to pass. By his sacrifice of himself on the cross, he cleansed us from the stain of our sins and then he sat down at the right hand of God on high. As good and powerful and helpful as the myriads of angels, as chapter 1 points to, that God created, and over which he rules, Jesus is greater. He alone is the Son. The angels worship him. He does not worship them. His sovereign rule is forever and ever. And this is really big. He laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are his handiwork. It was to Jesus Christ, the Son, and to no one else that God the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Amen. So I share all that to set the foundation, to really lay the foundation, because if you don't grasp and grab hold of what chapter 1 is preparing and setting before us, then chapter 2 may not have as much influence or grab our attention as much as it should Chapter 1, God, Jesus is God made visible. Jesus is seated at God's right hand. Jesus is eternal. And on and on and on, like I just shared. But there is something missing in chapter 1. Maybe you didn't notice it. There are no commands. There are no imperatives. There are no obligations. There are no demands from God towards us. There are no responsibilities. That is, until we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. So chapter 1 had to set it all up for us. God always goes before us to prepare that. And he sets it for us so that when we get to chapter 2, it grabs hold of us. So there's three principles really from our text, these four verses. The first one is this, gospel seriousness. And these are going to sound really simple. Gospel seriousness. We have to take it serious. Look at, again at verse 1 in chapter 2. Therefore, we, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Right here in verse 1, we run into the urgency of the word therefore. Or as some translations have it, for this reason. This is the author's way of saying simply because. Because of what I have said to you in chapter 1, this is what we should be doing. This is our response to what we have heard. Because Jesus is God's final word to mankind, because Jesus is himself God, because Jesus is the creator and sustainer and providential Lord over all things, because Jesus is infinitely superior to the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard and read about him. Think about in your own life what you give attention to. Think about the things in your life that, that you allow through the filter into your life. Think about the things that you think about. And ask yourself. Introspect yourself. Ask, let us ask ourselves. Do I think about Jesus more than any of those things? Do I pay much closer to Jesus than any of those things? Is Jesus the one who's filtering those things for me? Is his word, is the spirit, 
the author of Hebrews says, listen, this is serious. This is incredibly serious. Pay very close attention to what you've just read. Listen very intently to what you've just heard. This isn't optional. This isn't optional. This isn't some, you know, on the level of some good advice. This, this goes far beyond a, a suggestion. This is a matter of immediate, constant, and eternal urgency. So one of the things that we learn in this verse is that the gospel must be taken seriously. It must be. It's one of the reasons why we believe God led us in this time to start a campaign to expand our campus so that all people, everyone, will have the opportunity to hear and know the, the gospel, the urgency behind it. Because of this, and please hear me, not to be morbid and not to, not to use scare tactics, certainly not the, the motive behind this. The truth is, though, every one of us are going to die. All of us in this room and online are, are going to die. Whether it be within seconds or years or decades, all of us will die. And when we do, there will be only one thing that ultimately matters. Only one thing will determine what happens next, be it heaven or hell. And that one thing, in the words of verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, is whether or not before you or I died, we paid much closer attention to what the biblical text said about Jesus Christ. We can't wait until after we die. Why? Because it'll be too late. Again, there's an urgency there. Again, that's why we believe God led us into the campaign that we're in now. So that no one would perish. And that we would be able to tell all people about Jesus. This may be the first time, but it isn't the last time we'll hear this urgent plea in the book of Hebrews. As we go through this series and as we look through the rest of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.1, we'll be told to consider Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, to look at Jesus. And the question we ask is, why? why do we do this? Why must we do this? Why must we do this? Because... Only in and through and because of Jesus do we have access to what our author describes in the text that we're studying. In verse 3, what does he call it? Such a great, what? Salvation. It's only through Christ. So again, the stress here, the importance here is on paying attention to the gospel message what has been heard, that which we heard from Jesus, that which we heard from the apostles, which we'll look at in the rest of our text, we need to pay close attention to it. And it's stressed because the danger of neglecting it, or as the author puts it, drifting away from it. Consider this. And I don't know all of your stories or if you grew, how you grew up, if you grew up in church or not, in a Bible-teaching, Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming church or not, but... Some live and grow up in churches, but we also live today in our time and space in a digitally connected world where, where the gospel is around us, and many are very accustomed to the gospel message of Christianity because of the way we have information flowing among our time and space on this little globe spinning in the universe. All of us, though, can get to the point where, where we tend from time to time to slip into a place where amazing grace isn't so amazing anymore. When was the last time that you stopped and you paused 
and it just captured you how great and good and beautiful and majestic and wonderful and loving is God's amazing grace. In fact, over time it may become routine or boring. It's one of the reasons when we take communion at the first of every month, we want to make sure that we're we're noticing that this isn't to be boring or routine. This isn't just something that we do because we do it, that this is to be, again, for stirring us and reminding us and, and leading us, giving us perseverance and endurance. But if we're not careful, it becomes expected. The gospel just is expected. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says that's a danger for everyone. That's a danger for everyone, even and especially for those in the blessed churches that preach the gospel regularly, which we hope to be included in. We become complacent about the gospel message. When you look back at chapter 1 and you, you allow the, the beauty of chapter 1 and the, the magnanimous me of, of chapter 1 of, of what, what Christ has done and who Christ is, and, and you just let that just really just kind of overwhelm and sit on top of you, when you hear what he's saying in chapter 2, you go, I get it. I get it. This isn't something that we just, we just do and just move on. This is something that should be every, every moment that it should be welling up within us and then it should be moving out of us. But we can become complacent. That's why he seems, to, seems here that the author of Hebrews is more concerned about those, not really those who are going to outright reject the gospel, but those who might just simply drift away. That's why he says, lest we drift away from it at the last part of verse 1. He's concerned about apathy. He's concerned about indifference to the truth. To the truth. He's not so concerned again about someone who might stand up in the middle of a, of a sermon or a message and say, well, I don't believe the gospel, it's rubbish. He seems to be more concerned about those who sit there and hear it but neglect it. speaking right to that situation and in the face of that temptation what he wants us to remember is the seriousness of the gospel this is serious more serious than anything else that we can have or experience or know in our lives because it's eternal and if you choose not to pay close consistent daily heartfelt attention to the good news of God about Jesus what will happen he says well Drift away. He probably says it more clearly than anybody else in Scripture. He says, you'll quite likely begin to drift. And we ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to drift? The Greek word translated drift away occurs nowhere else really in the New Testament. But it seems clear that here in Hebrews 2, he had in mind this nautical metaphor in which like a ship is seen slowly drifting out to sea past the dock where it should have been secured. You've maybe experienced a drift. If you've been to the ocean and there was a riptide and you were just out there maybe just hanging out with friends or family and you're just talking, the next thing you know, you're 30, 40 feet down the shore. When we do baptisms in the ocean, we notice that. If, when we go out from the crowd where everybody's standing on the beach, if we're not careful, we'll just, you know, and it's not because, you know, we're swimming away. It's just because it just drifts us and it moves us. If you've ever been in a boat and you've lost the, the, the anchoring, and you just and you weren't paying really paying attention. You just start to drift because of the current or the tide. All those things. 
It's again why we wanted to be, and why we believe God gave us the illustration of being a lighthouse. Not because you anchor to the lighthouse, but because the lighthouse points to where you anchor. And we want to be the lighthouse that points to where we anchor, which is to be Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 6.19, the author speaks of the Christian hope as a secure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So, so the gospel of salvation is portrayed as solid, fixed, and an immovable port to which we must carefully anchor ourselves. So then think about the nature of drifting away. And do you know what you have to do to drift? You know what you have to do? Nothing. Nothing. You don't do anything, you're, you'll drift. You take Christianity lightly, you take being a disciple of Christ lightly, you'll drift. You treat it casually or not at all, you'll drift. C.S. Lewis, author C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, If you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. This is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Why? Because we forget. My mama reminded me that I forget a lot of things. She always reminded me of those things I needed to remember. Lewis goes on to say, Neither disbelief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. As a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? And the opposite of drifting isn't merely being present. It's not merely being present. It's listening to. It's believing in. It's growing in love. It's devoting our entire lives to Jesus diligently and passionately, paying close attention to the gospel of what God has done for sinners, me, you, us, what he has done for sinners in Jesus, fixing our faith on Jesus, anchoring solid in Christ, pursuing him, and with a desire to grow in knowledge and truth about him. It's one of the ways that we fight it. We all face this danger. So none of us, listen, none of us, none of us are excluded. So then we must all pay attention. We all must pay attention today and tomorrow, if God gives us tomorrow, and every day until the race that we're running is done. So the author says, don't drift, because if you do, there's no escape, which is my next point. It's the next principle. There's no escape. Verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now he begins here looking back at the message here that he's talking about in verse 2 is the Mosaic law. God's revelation of himself and his will in the old covenant. And the angels were used primarily as the intermediaries of giving of that of the giving of that law and, and and everything that God communicated through the angels was absolutely reliable is what the author is saying here which is to say it was perfect which is to say it was trustworthy 
Why? Because it wasn't from the angels, it was from God. They were just speaking on his behalf. So therefore it was good and it was just for God to punish those who transgressed and disobeyed the dictates of Mosaic law. He's a, he's a merciful and just God. That's good for everyone. Most scholars and commentators agree that just retribution for violating some principle of the Mosaic law was at worst physical death. That was as extreme as it got in terms of punishment. So, so here's what's happening. The author of Hebrews is now, he's saying that as he argues from lesser to greater. If there was such severe retribution for violating, for, from God for violating the terms of a lesser covenant, the Mosaic law, right? Mediated by angels, surely there will be worse retribution for violating the terms of a greater covenant brought to us by God's Son and our Savior Jesus. That's what he's pointing out. And what could be worse than physical death? Well, Jesus said it himself. Don't fear the one who can kill you physically, but fear the one who can kill you physically and spiritually. So what's, what's worse than physical death? Spiritual death, eternal death. So in other words, what is at stake in drifting away? Well, verses 2 and 3 speak to that. What is at stake from drifting away, from neglecting the salvation that has come to us in Jesus is our eternal destiny. That's what's at stake. That's how big this is, which therefore tells us how serious this is because he's given us a place to live forever, the home that we were created for, that he has provided the pathway home, our eternal destiny with him in heaven. That's how serious this is. And we'll get more into some of this as we go through some coming chapters, but I'll give you this. One of the unmistakable signs that we are true children of God, this is a litmus test for those who would call themselves sons or daughters of the king, a disciple of Jesus, a believer. One of the true signs that we are true children of God, born again, justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, is that we are, if we are drifting, we won't continue in it for long. A true child of God will hear the message, feel the pain in our conscience, which is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The evidence that we are true children of God is that we'll sense that. And we'll have a desire to turn, turn our eyes, our heart, our ears back upon Christ and his forgiveness and his mercy, which, which he delights in doing because he's different than us. He's better than us. And then to be attentive and devoted again to who he is and what he says and all that he has done for us, all that he is doing for us and what he has promised to do in the future for us. And one of the signs that you may not be born again or justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And again, it's going to be the opposite, right? Is that if these words in the warning of Hebrews 2 makes little to no impact on your heart. Like when you hear it, you hear this and you respond again with indifference or or, or, or apathy, or you just disregard it as information, there's really no weight or seriousness to what is being said. And so the author is saying, neglecting the gospel of salvation in the New Testament leads to no escape from the wrath of God. Now remember, that wrath was taken for us, and you have the, you have the offer before you if you've never received the grace of God to, to know that Jesus took that wrath for you. If you respond to the invitation to know and believe in Christ and transfer your trust off yourself to him, 
surrender and call him not only Savior, but Lord. The gospel can't be sidestepped. It's serious. It's weighty. We can't be neutral about it. We're either for it or against it. And when I, when I say that, I want you to see this last point. God confirmed this for us. God confirmed it. Look at the last part of our text, the last part of 3 and verse 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. God has confirmed the gospel to us by His Son and also by the teaching of the apostles. After it was first spoken through Jesus, it was confirmed to those by who heard, by those who heard, right? The gospel, in other words, was announced. It was announced, and you can study this in the gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel was announced in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Then it was confirmed to us. And so the author is actually kind of speaking here as like a, a second-generation Christian because he says it was, it was spoken by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. So in other words, we first heard this gospel, he's saying, through the mouths of the apostles. They are the ones who preached to us this gospel, but it was confirmed in the life of Jesus. Then it was confirmed through the ministry and the lives of the apostles. So, so these people heard the gospel from those who heard it from Christ. Let that sink in for a second. This is what he's saying. We heard the gospel from those who heard it from Jesus meaning the disciples, you know, the 12 who walked with Christ. It's stirring, right? As I was studying through different commentators, one commentator shares a story from the late 2nd century from the early church father, Irenaeus. Irenaeus recounts being in a room and listening to a man named Polycarp. Now, that, now, now remember, this is outside of the Holy Scripture. This is not... In the Holy Scripture, this is outside of it, so I want you to remember that. And he's he talks about he was in a room listening to a man named Polycarp teach theology, the truth of God, right? And he says that in the midst of one one of Polycarp's lectures, Polycarp says, "Now, not many years ago, John was sitting there and he was teaching me these things. John, the John, the John of the Bible, the John who has a book." couple books, several, in the Bible, in the Holy Scripture, the John. Think about just the closeness of this to the Lord Jesus' ministry. And, of course, the reason he was sharing this was he was saying, look, I'm not confused about what the gospel is. I heard it from Polycarp, who heard it from John, who wrote it from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, look, we heard this from the apostles, and they heard it from Jesus, and they did these things in the midst of it. He says, I'm not confused about who Jesus is. I heard it from the apostles, and they told me these things. And of course, the beautiful thing is for you and I today is we get to hear from the apostles each week as we open God's Word. Every time we open the New Testament, we hear it. God has been so good to us, right? He, he's given us a firsthand account of what Jesus did. And we ask, well, why is he telling us that? It's because he's not asking us to believe in fairy tales or myths or legends. 
That this is real. This is serious. The gospel is serious. This isn't something that's just made up that you just listen to and then it just kind of, it doesn't really have any weight or bearing on our lives. It doesn't have really any influence. It doesn't really shape or transform. It doesn't cause us to pause or, or look at like, what's life really about, all those things. He, he's like, no, this is serious. This is what it is about. And, and so he, he knows that we need some confirmation to believe that the re information is reliable before us. I want that. You want that. So God's given it to us. And he says, look, these men heard it from Jesus and they told it to us. And in God's good providence in that very first generation, they wrote it down. And they wrote it down. And you can study that. You can study the history of the canon of Scripture. You can look at the, the books that have been written about how it was put together, all that kind of thing. But, but they wrote it down so that the succeeding generations, all the way to us, did not have to depend on the second and the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth hand testimony. So that even we today, 2,000 years later, we can depend upon the first hand testimony as to who Jesus was and what he said and what he did. So the gospel was shared with us by the apostles themselves. And that testimony of Christ and the apostles to the gospel message increases. Here's what it does. Here's why this is important. It increases our responsibility to respond to this truth. It, it levels it up because it's from the Lord. And we have the testimony and the confirmation. On the last day, no one's going to be able to say, but you know, Lord, you know, you didn't really make it that clear. You didn't really leave a testimony there was really no message out there to explain it to me. To the point that in verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, well, God confirmed it. Not only was it spoken and given to us through Christ and his life and death and resurrection and ascension and coming again, or through the apostles that walked with him, but God confirmed the gospel by wonders and gifts. It's not just that God called these men from common work to holy work and that they faithfully proclaimed this truth that had been entrusted to them by Jesus. It's also that the Lord attested to their work. By what? By signs, by wonders, by miracles. These signs and these wonders and miracles that are, that are done by the, the apostles, which are recorded for us in the New Testament, were what? They were attesting evidences. It was evidential that God was at work here. This was of God. That's why it's serious. That's why it's important. The God, the, the sustainer, the creator, the God of the universe. They were works given by God to do what? To prove that what these men were saying was absolutely true. They were there to prove the divine authority of Christ. For instance, when Christ performed a miracle, the function of the miracle was not simply to impress the crowd, although it most likely did, nor was it necessarily to convert anyone. And we know that because there were many people who saw Jesus' miracles who didn't believe in him. Some very close to him. But those miracles that Christ performed were there to confirm that what he has said was indeed the very truth of God just like it was the same with the apostles. Another commentator, he, in speaking about this part of the text, 
he notes this. He said, those miracles were delegated by Christ to the apostles, and those miracles were performed by the apostles through that delegation. But he says this, note how the miraculous, the miracle, was subservient to the word. And what he means by that, he says, because if you look at it, you'll see in many areas of Christianity today, that's been separated. There's no relation to the word. But in the early church, the miracle was a testimony to the word of truth. And the miracle was absolutely worthless apart from its testimony to the word of truth. So he says its function was to confirm the gospel message itself. The gifts of the Spirit, too, were signs that God is confirming the truth and the reality of the gospel that these men were preaching. So if you go back to the beginning of the church in Acts, a few books back in the New Testament, and you get to the place of Pentecost, and the early church was forming, as Peter and the others got up at Pentecost, they got up with no credentials. Like they didn't have letters beside their name. They, didn't, they weren't well known around the world. They weren't even well known in the area. They, just, you know, they didn't have those kind of credentials. They weren't like the, the best communicator speaker on the, on the tour out there. They weren't any of those guys, right? They had no credentials in the eyes of the world. So what had to happen? God confirmed them with his own credentials. So that what? If you think about it, it couldn't be of them. It was all of God. Exactly what I say before I walk up here every time I get the opportunity and privilege to share the word. Not me, but you. None of me, all of you. Hebrews is concerned to stress the truth and the reliability of the gospel message. That's why this author lists for us the credentials of the gospel message. He says, we heard it firsthand, and it was testified to by miracles of God. Why is he saying that? Here's why, and this is important, we'll finish. Because you cannot embrace the gospel until you believe it's true. You cannot embrace the gospel until you believe it's true. I mean, you can't believe it's partially true or half true or a portion of it. You have to believe it's true, period. And I'll say this, if it's not true, it's ultimately not good. And, exactly, and that's exactly where the author of Hebrews is. He's saying, look, this is true. And because it's true, it's serious. Because it's true. It's serious. So don't drift away from it. May the Lord help us bear testimony to this truth and to the gravity of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, God, may our lives be as the lives of the apostles were, as we witness and testify to the goodness of the gospel. May our lives be surrendered and submitted to your work, the mission that you've given us, no matter where we're at, at work, at play, at home, wherever we find ourselves, that, that the gospel is at work in the center of us, flowing out of us in every area and conversation and decision and all that we are, knowing that this is true. And because it's true, it's serious. It's serious for ourselves. It's serious for our families. It's serious for those around us. God, that's why we want to be 
place, a campus that shines the light on the gospel, the truth of the gospel, so those that are in darkness will see a light that will draw them out and bring them out. And I pray that for anyone here in this room or watching online, that they see your light, the light of Christ that illuminates and repels the darkness of the world and our flesh. God, that they would come home to that light, that they would respond in repentance and faith, that they would just believe in Jesus as he says to believe in him, that they would confess the sin, the rebellion, the things that have held them back from responding to Jesus, calling them. May your spirit illuminate this into their lives right now and may, may many come to know your salvation, not ours, but yours and the finished work of Christ. God, may we be reminded that when we look in the mirror every time we do, for those who are a disciple, a son or daughter of yours, a child of yours, that when we look in the mirror, we are reminded of the miraculous. Your salvation in our lives is an amazing grace. It is miraculous. And may we be, may we be surrendered and humbled by that, but also may we be stirred to go out and tell others. May we testify and witness to this beautiful truth. May we sing and praise the King, and not any King, but the King, the the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our King, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.